Let's pray together as we prepare to open the family book once more. Father in heaven, it's become so apparent over the past two years, especially how much transformation human hearts need and how much transformation this world needs. And Lord, we know that you are moving all of history toward that goal of renewing the earth, giving us the new earth and the new heavens as, believer, as believers. And Father, we pray, hasten the day. But we recognize, Lord, as we look at things happening outside of us, outside of our nation even, that we simply can't just point the finger out there, but Lord, you invite us to examine our own hearts. Our own hearts need transformation, and we're so thankful that by the Holy Spirit you have undertaken that powerful task to transform us into the image of your Son. But Lord, we recognize that we all have so far to go on that journey. And now as we open your word, which really is, this section really is about transformation. You speaking to us and you working in our hearts, Lord, we ask for alertness, for help as we listen to your word. We know that you are out for our good. We know that you are uh, powerful to, to transform and to change us. Sometimes that's uncomfortable, Lord but we know it's for our good. And so I pray that we would listen well to what the Spirit is saying to the church. And Father, that each of us would humble ourselves and stand under the authority of your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. Jonah had been so full of praise when he had prayed from the belly of the fish. Jonah had been so full of thanksgiving when he prayed to God in chapter 2, verse 6. You brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. You saved my life, Lord when death threatened me in the raging sea. Jonah had been so grateful to God because God had miraculously spared his life. But now just two chapters later, we find Jonah praying for his death. Suddenly Jonah no longer values his life. Jonah asks God, to end it. Therefore now, O Lord, O Yahweh, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. The question is, why does Jonah pray in this very extreme way here? The key word is the word therefore, at the start of the, the verse. The word therefore, of course, links back to what Jonah has just finished saying 
prior to this verse, which would be verse two. And in verse two, Jonah has just finished rehearsing Exodus chapter 34, verse six, which is that great description of God's character. Remember from last week, if you were with us, God is gracious, God is merciful, God is slow to anger, God is abounding in hesed, uh, steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore, Lord, because of the fact that you have been true to your gracious and merciful character in dealing with these terrorist Ninevites, please take my life from me. I don't want to live anymore, says Jonah. Jonah is disgruntled to death with God's mercy toward Nineveh. And there's, there's definitely an issue of pride here in Jonah. Jonah is embarrassed. Jonah is humiliated because Jonah had engaged that very difficult and very risky ministry of preaching Nineveh's overthrow right there on the streets of Nineveh. But now that overthrow wasn't happening. God had gone ahead and he had exercised mercy toward Nineveh instead of the destruction that Jonah had specifically preached. A big reason that Jonah wants to die is because of wounded pride. Jonah is terribly upset. He's upset at God. He's upset at those awful Ninevites. He, he's upset because what he wanted done wasn't getting done. He's upset because his pride has been wounded. We look at Jonah here and we, we see a person who, despite being a prophet called by God, despite being a prophet called by God, Jonah is in love, listen, with something other than God. It's Jonah's plans, Jonah's demands, Jonah's dreams that are far more important and precious to Jonah than God's plans, God's purposes, God's mission. Believers in Jesus Christ, beware. Here's a person who attends church services faithfully, who gives faithfully, who prays, who regularly uses all the right Christian talk, who attends every church Christian event, and yet there's something awry in this person's heart. This person is more in love with their plans for Christ's church, more in love with their dreams and their demands for the Christian community around them than they are with the messy community itself and with God himself. More in love with their dreams for their neighbor 
than they are loving the actual broken neighbor. And here's what happens. I can't put this any better than Tim Keller has put it. So I'm gonna read you a quote from Keller. Keller says, and I want you to listen, quote, as long as there is something more important than God to your heart, you will be, like Jonah, both fragile and self-righteous. Whatever it is, it will create pride and an inclination to look down upon those who do not have it. It will also create fear and insecurity. It is the basis for your happiness, and if anything threatens it, you will be overwhelmed with anger, anxiety, and despair. Lord, help us. Are you with me this morning? Lord, help us. Jonah's plans in Jonah's way for Jonah's world hadn't turned out. Therefore, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Now, what I love about verse 4 is how God doesn't even dignify Jonah's death wish. Notice this carefully. God says nothing in direct response to Jonah's death wish. God doesn't play the game. God doesn't say, there, there, Jonah, I I understand how you feel. God doesn't coddle Jonah as Jonah is wallowing in his anger. What God does here instead is God poses a terse, powerful, laser-beamed question to Jonah. God asks Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? Or in the NASB, do you have good reason to be angry? Now friends, each and every one of us, me and you, would be very wise to hear this question from God as a question that is directed to us personally. Hear it that way. I very much like what Peter Williams has says, and I concur with him when he says this, God's questions are meant to teach us something or to expose to us our inner selves when we are guilty of sin or disobedience. So he says, whenever we read the Bible and come across God asking a question, we ought to ask ourselves, is God addressing that question to me? And if so, what am I meant to learn from it? Do you do well to be angry? Let's let God's question take us to school here. Amen? Let's camp on this question. Uncomfortable question that God asks here. In Genesis chapter 4, 
God had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, God had no regard. So Cain was very, what? Angry. And his face fell. And then what happened? Genesis 4, verse 6. God asked Cain a question. And the question that God asked Cain sounds, doesn't it? It sounds very much like the question that God asks Jonah. God asked Cain, why are you angry? And the Hebrew word that is translated angry that gets used in the Genesis 4 question is the same word that we have in Jonah 4, 4. Do you well to be, do you do well to be angry? The word has to do with burning, with heat. Cain had been all hot with anger. Jonah is hot with anger. Only two verses after God asked Cain, why are you angry? What happened? Cain murdered Abel in the field. Cain's anger, his hot anger, spilled over into the brutal murder of his brother. Jonah, you see, is dangerously like Cain. Jonah is angry. Cain murdered Abel in anger, and Jonah wants what? He wants the people of Nineveh to be exterminated, to be overthrown, to be judged, to be destroyed. Note this very well. Jonah has such a dangerously heightened sense of his own righteousness here, friends. He's burning with anger because his dream and his program is not coming to pass. Do you do well to be angry? When, when, when your plan for a person or for persons has become more important to you, your plan has become more important to you than the persons themselves, and your plan doesn't come to pass, do you, well, do you do well to be angry? When I witness my enemy getting richly blessed by God or receiving great compassion from God, do I do well to be angry? When the dream that you've decided on for your community isn't realized, do you do well to be angry? When I burn with jealousy over the material wealth of that rascal or the family that God gave to my enemy or over the spouse or the blessings that God gave to that person that I don't like, do I do well to be angry? I'm praying that God would meddle in our affairs by his word and spirit right now, that he would do that uncomfortably and redemptively like he does. 
Well, the communication between God and Jonah in this passage, passage is very strained, to say the least. Now we come to verse 5, and we get absolutely no verbal response from Jonah to the question that God has asked. Jonah, what does he do? He just takes off without saying anything. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. Notice that in this single verse, we have the word city repeated three times. It's the city. That is Jonah's preoccupation here. He wants to know what will happen with the city. For the moment, God doesn't seem to be acting with vengeance on the city, but maybe, thinks Jonah, maybe, God might still decide to destroy the city. Jonah waits. He makes a makeshift booth, notice, that he's put together. Probably it's made of mud and stones and mud bricks and maybe the odd uh, branch and notice the specific location, won't you, that Jonah chooses here. Uh, Jonah, he sits in the shade. Jonah is concerned for his own comfort, <laughs> right? For his own comfort in the shade as he waits and hopes for what? For the discomfort, the destruction of the Ninevites. Friends, this verse gives us a very sad and a very pathetic picture of an angry, self-isolated believer. An angry Jonah wants to isolate himself from God. He doesn't even bother replying to the question that God had asked in verse four. An angry Jonah wants to isolate himself from the city of Nineveh that he's just preached in. Here he is <clears throat> in his hastily constructed box seat alone, now a spectator looking down on Nineveh, hoping for a great show of fire and brimstone to fall on the city. Jonah is hoping for a drastic and devastating change in the fortunes of Nineveh, all the while unaware, unaware of the drastic change that is really necessary for his own calloused heart. It's Jonah's heart that's sick here. It's Jonah's heart that has become so ugly here. But like the rest of us do so very often, in his anger and his bitterness, Jonah points outside of himself, doesn't he? Outside of himself to God, to the Ninevites. They are the source of my anger, Jonah thinks. Jonah can't see that his own heart needs transformation. You can't see it because he's unself-aware. Do you do well to be angry? I think Eugene Peterson is spot on here. Very incisive when he says, when we're angry, we usually begin by assuming that the wrong is outside us. Isn't that true? Our spouse or our child, or our neighbor, or our God has done something wrong, and we are angry. 
That is what Jonah did, and he quarreled with God. But when we track the anger carefully, says Peterson, when we track the anger carefully, we often find it leads to a wrong within us. Wrong information, inadequate understanding, underdeveloped heart. If we admit and face that, then we are pulled out of our quarrel with God into something large in God. We are pulled out of our quarrel with God into something large in God. I want to give that, give that to you one more time because I think it's a really important observation. Peterson says, listen, when we're angry, we usually begin by assuming that the wrong is outside us. Our spouse or our child or our neighbor or our God has done something wrong and we are angry. That is what Jonah did and he quarreled with God. But when we track the anger carefully, we often find that it leads to a wrong within us. Wrong information, inadequate understanding, underdeveloped heart. If we admit and face that, then we are pulled out of our quarrel with God into something large in God. May, may God humble all of us, each of us by his spirit, by his word as, as he continues to work in us. In his commentary on the book of Jonah, Richard Phillips poses the question. I think it's an interesting question. He poses this question. What would the source of Jonah's gladness and Jonah's delight be in this moment? <laughs> he says, does Jonah have gladness in this moment? That's the first question we should ask. Does he actually have delight in this moment? Think of this, friends. As Jonah sits there in his pathetic booth, is Jonah glad in God? glad in God's ways, God's freedom? Is Jonah delighting here in God's character, his freedom to do as he likes, or is Jonah's being right? <laughs> Jonah's determination to have things go Jonah's way. Is that what ranks higher on the delight scale than God does for Jonah? Does Jonah do well to be angry? Do we? Have we set up a little booth like Jonah, content with God's grace to us, but hoping for misfortune for somebody else? What a picture we have in verse five. An angry Jonah waits alone, hopes by himself for the destruction of Nineveh. Well, friends, long before Jonah, there lived another Israelite who in the moment when God was threatening to destroy a city, this Israelite did not take glee in the possibility of destruction, setting up a booth, becoming an eager spectator like Jonah, but rather this Israelite did everything he could to negotiate with God to spare the city. What's this person's name? Abraham. Abraham who pleaded before the Lord six times to spare the wicked city of Sodom. Jonah is so un-Abrahamic in Jonah chapter four. Abraham was not from Sodom, 
But nevertheless, Abraham pleaded with God, didn't he, that Sodom would be spared. Jonah is not from Nineveh, but for his part, Jonah waits and he hopes for the destruction of the city. Jonah is so un-Abrahamic in Jonah 4, but more significantly, friends, far more significantly, Jonah is so un-Christ-like in Jonah chapter 4. Jonah angrily, picture him there, angrily sitting in his booth, hoping for the destruction of the city. Jonah sitting in his booth, grieving over the fact that this evil city repented and that they're now being spared. Jesus, who is the heart of God embodied, wept over the unrepentance of a city, didn't he? Wept over the unrepentant people of Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. And then notice what he says. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. As O. Palmer Robertson puts it here, he says, Jonah, listen, Jonah grieves that a repentant city should be spared. Jesus grieves that an unrepentant city must be judged. Again, Jonah grieves that a repentant city should be spared. Jesus grieves that an unrepentant city must be judged. Friends, the heart of Jonah from Galilee and the heart of Jesus from Galilee are so polar opposite, aren't they? Well, I confess to you that I see myself in Jonah. Absolutely, I do. And maybe you see yourself in him also. Uncomfortably. When I see Jonah sitting there unbudging in his obsession that his program be fulfilled. When I see Jonah there nursing petty, unhealthy emotions and attitudes, when I see the petulant Jonah sitting there attempting to fashion this pathetic comfort for himself out of mud bricks and stones, trying to make himself comfortable, I, I see reflections in my own flaws. And it hits me that as far as Romans 8.29 is concerned, being conformed to the image of God's Son, I still have miles and miles to go in that process. Where Colossians 3.10 is concerned, my new self being renewed in knowledge after the image of my Creator, I still have a real journey to travel. How about you? Well, the good news, the good news, fellow believers, is that we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, 
are being transformed, are being transformed, hallelujah, are being transformed, how the world needs the transformation that only God can provide, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, 2 Corinthians 3.18. As we speak, the Spirit is working in us as born-again believers, chopping off the angry Jonah in us and killing it and causing us to look increasingly like Jesus Christ. Good news? Good news? Yes? Amen? Are you with me? Good news? The good news is that the new self that the Spirit has birthed in us is being renewed, is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, Colossians 3 verse 10. Believers in Jesus, we are being transformed by God's power and his work to look more and more like Jesus. Like Jesus who self-sacrificially, lovingly, graciously did what? Gave up his own life to rescue his enemies to rescue us Ninevites from eternal condemnation. We're being transformed to look like him. Hallelujah and amen. Right now, if you are a genuine born-again believer in Jesus Christ, God is at work in you, changing you and remolding you and crafting you to look like Jesus, to renew your mind and make your heart reflect his heart. But of course, this does not mean, does it, that we simply sit back and be passive. The tension in the New Testament is that even as the Spirit is transforming us, it's very clear, we must make efforts to obey the Lord, to go to work, to listen well to his life-giving commandments and follow through in his power, not to just be hearers of the word, but doers also. Walk, says Paul, in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Love your enemies, says Jesus. Grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Put off your old self and put on the new self. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you, etc., 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 etc. My sincere prayer, brothers and sisters, is that the same Spirit of God who gives us everything needed to carry out His commands has nudged us, has motivated us, motivated us, has disturbed us this morning. Uh, my esteemed, now passed on to glory. Church history professor David Priestley used to say, oh, how we love the Jesus who is flannel sheets and soft pillows. But Jesus is also sandpaper. And sometimes we need to come under the authority of the sandpaper word, the uncomfortable parts, and be changed. 
So I hope that the Lord has disturbed us, if we're too comfortable this morning, disturbed us into walking a few steps further in a manner worthy of the calling in which we have been called. Let's be doers of the word and not hearers only. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this text that gets under our skin when we meditate upon it slowly and carefully that shows up the calcified and stony parts that still exist in our inner man, in our inner person, in our soul. And Lord God, I pray for each and every person hearing the word today that your spirit will work powerfully to make us, Lord, self-aware of these things, to change us, examine our hearts, O God. Your church is to be a display case on this earth of your glory. Make us that way, transform us. Lord God, thank you for working in us, for never giving up on us, though you have every reason to do that for being gracious toward us. And I pray your ongoing transformation, moving us from A to B to C to D and on and on and on for your glory, for our benefit and for the benefit of your world. In Jesus' name, amen.